We're expanding On Being's Civil Conversations project to be more of a resource for families and communities, for the work of starting new conversations where we live and building common life for this century. Because the point of speaking together differently is to live together differently. Go to civilconversationsproject.org and find audio, video, even a starter guide. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited live conversation with Patrice Cullors and Dr. Robert K. Ross. Download the MP3 of our produced show with them at onbeing.org. Well, um, you know, I, I was at the California Endowment once before, I think it must have been two years ago, and was so taken by this Healthy Communities Initiative and the work you're doing with trauma and the work I understand that everybody in this room is engaged in in some way. So I'm really delighted to be back. Um, with the California Endowment, also my thanks to Mary Lou and with Dr. Robert Ross, who I have, I'm going to endeavor for the rest of this morning to call Bob. Um, uh, I, I see you rethinking you know, to me, the largest context in which you're operating is that you are, this work is rethinking and readdressing human wholeness and, and re, rethinking and redefining public health in its fullness. And in my mind, Patrice Cullors also, who is an, active, is an activist and an artist who from a very different direction is kind of doing the same thing, helping our entire society rethink and readdress human wholeness, social healing in its fullness, who we are to each other. Um, I first started talking to Dr. Ross, Bob, and his staff, and, and he was the one who suggested that we might have a, because I wanted to talk to him about this moment in time. And he said, how do you want to come into this? And he suggested a cross-generational conversation. And actually, we've been doing more and more of that, because I think there's a real hunger I actually think we as human beings need cross-generational relationship, and our, our culture has gravitated away from that. And so we find that when we do these cross-generational conversations, put these on the air, people are getting something they didn't even know they needed. Little did we know at the time that this would not only be two generations, but three generations. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was uh, in divinity school when my first child, my daughter, was born, and I took her to classes with me all the time, and I worried that she was going to from the womb have this idea of the world as this place where there's one constant monologue coming at you. <laughs> and your baby is going to have the world as a revolution happening. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do for the next 90 minutes or so, and, and let me just say this in terms of logistics, um, we're going to talk up here to, among ourselves for maybe, maybe 50 minutes and um, then open it up to you. Um, there are some cards, yes, on your chairs. Um, at some point closer to that time, I'll signal and somebody will come and collect them. And then we'll have a conversation with the whole room. And then come back up here to close, and we are recording this for later broadcasts. So we get to have an experience in this room, and then we share it, and it becomes an experience that's shared by many other people. Um, and what we're going to do is reflect with these two visionary leaders about this moment in time we are all inhabiting and the world we are making moving forward. Um, we, we most often grapple publicly, I think, when it comes to Black Lives Matter and our whole encounter with racial and social inequity. 
in terms of news events and violent injustice and political and legal actions. And I'm sure we will touch on those things in this conversation. But what we're also trying to do at the same time this morning is carve out a space to explore human and spiritual underpinnings and promise in these things. And that word spiritual expansively understood in a 21st century sense, getting at things that these two think about and work with all the time, despair and courage and creativity, trauma and resilience, and the possibility for growth as individuals and communities. Um, and so I want to start uh, with a little bit, just hearing a little bit about the spiritual ground and formation of each of your early lives, and, and focus that on what you would now, perhaps not then, but now call experiences of trauma and resilience um, that were seeds of the passion for addressing these things that you're, that you're now bringing to all of us. And Patrice, I want to start with you. You grew up here in Los Angeles in the 1990s. Born and raised. Born and raised, <laughs> yeah. So how, where does your mind go if you think about um, the spiritual underpinnings of your life as they had to mm -hmm. do with what you would now call trauma and resilience? I love this question. <laughs> um, we don't get asked these things a lot in our movement, but um, one, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for having me on, and thank you, Kalendow, for inviting me. And, and for me, I'm, I feel like I'm not just bringing myself, but I'm bringing the movement into this conversation. Um, I'm bringing my ancestors into this conversation. And um, my great-grandmother, uh, Jenny Ensley, who would have been 103 just a couple days ago, uh, is a deep reminder for me around why I do this work. She um, raised me and my three other siblings while my mom had to work three jobs to barely get food on our table. And she uh, was both Choctaw, Blackfoot, and uh, African-American, grew up in Oklahoma. Her, uh, her father was a medicine man. And she told us lots of stories about the KKK, mm. lots of stories of uh, her father defending their family against the KKK, and her eventual uh, move to Los Angeles. And she was probably one of the most glamorous women I ever met. <laughs> she had hundreds of wigs in her closet <laughs> and lots of sequins. <laughs> um, and she was this um, amazing singer and had such a powerful impact on me and my siblings and my family's life because she uh, stood up for black life so fiercely uh, throughout her lifetime. And that looked like um, being a part of the NAACP. It looked like um, uh, picking up her black grandchildren all the time from uh, after school programs. It looked like um, uh, helping my mom navigate a system that was uh, uh, consistently trying to separate her from her children. And, uh, and my grandmother just really showed me what it uh, could look like to live a full life as a black woman in this country um, at, with integrity. Hmm. And so those are sort of my early years of understanding my own formation here in Los Angeles. Um, and then my grandmother was the first person to put me on stage. 
Uh, I wrote a speech if I were president when I was in second grade during the first Bush administration. And she, uh, you know, she would always ask me, what did you do in school today, grandbaby? And I read the speech to her and she was like, oh, well, um, I'm gonna have you read that speech at the women's club. <laughs> and I remember getting on stage at nine, reading the speech if I were president, her giving me this trophy. And it was just this moment where I was like, oh, someone believes in me. Uh, someone believes in what I have to offer. And I think um, what we forget when we are raising young black children is um, that uh, the belief in them is absolutely necessary uh, in building their own spiritual foundation and their own fortitude. And I believe if I didn't have my great grandmother who deeply believed in me and my siblings, I would not actually be uh, who I am today. You know, I that story is so wonderful and I love that the question elicited a whole different answer <laughs> than you then I you know I've heard you you all, you because that that story you just told about your grandmother and her glamour and that belief and that beauty and courage strength w was against a backdrop which is the story I've heard more often of you know growing up in Los Angeles in the 1990s in a neighborhood of, full of crack addicts mm -hmm. and crack down, mm -hmm. which as you said had essentially criminalized poverty and the effects of poverty, mm -hmm. and but it's a that both and mm -hmm. is who is what brought us you now. Yes, and I think it's important um, in this current historical moment that we're naming the tragedy and the resilience. Mm -hmm. um, so the tragedy is black people are being killed often uh, and continue to be killed often. The tragedy is that um, black people are living in poverty. Um, black folks have the highest rate of homelessness. Uh, those are the tragedies, but there is this, also this other side, which is this amazing movement that is challenging age old, racism and discrimination. Um, and I always tell audiences, what a great time to be alive, mm. um, to show up for this current historical moment. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Bob, you grew up in the South Bronx, and I don't know a lot about <laughs> your upbringing. Um, how, how would you start to talk about the formative seeds for your passion about trauma and resilience? Um, sure, yeah. Um, Patrice, by the way, do you still have that speech that you wrote in the second grade? <laughs> I don't know if I still have it. <laughs> I would love to see it. Um, yeah, so my upbringing, a, a bicultural uh, upbringing, my father's African-American, my mother's Puerto Rican. Uh, we grew up in the South Bronx um, uh, at a time when it was, you know, it was a challenge, still is, uh, a challenged uh, community. Um, my mother was, at the time, I didn't realize she was a community organizer, but she was. Okay. I mean, in retrospect, I now know she was a neighborhood um, organizer, and she would rally neighbors and residents to, for example, try and take back um, this vacant lot that the kids used to play in and had glass and rocks and... And, and litter and, and try and take it back as a park for the kids, for, for us kids, uh, and try and shoo away the drug dealers uh, from the park. And so, I, you know, my brothers and I thought she was just this 
nosy busybody. <laughs> um, but, uh, Which she, is what made old-fashioned neighborhoods healthy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, little, little, little did I know that she was uh, teaching me a lot about yeah. what uh, my work would look like. I would say for me that this, this, the spiritual pivot, if you will, that's related to the work um, that I do. And my, my staff has heard me um, say this. Um, you mentioned crack cocaine. And when I was, when I was a practicing pediatrician in the mid-'80s, late uh, late 80s, early 1990s, in Camden, New Jersey, and in North Philadelphia, is when crack cocaine came to the United States. When crack cocaine came to neighborhoods like, you know, communities like Detroit and Los Angeles and New York and and, and Camden, uh, it was an awakening for me on a couple of fronts. One, you know, before 1984, poor people couldn't buy cocaine. Crack cocaine gets some evil genius comes up with crack. All of a sudden, the euphoric, short-acting uh, passport to nirvana, known as crack cocaine, hit neighborhoods and communities. And for twenty, and for five bucks, you could buy your way into euphoria, right, and into hope. Um, but it's a very short-acting twenty-minute drug, and then you have to get at it over and over and over again. So that got introduced into inner city communities and it had a, subs a substantive impact on my experience in the community as a pediatrician and a healer, mm -hmm. right? Because now we're seeing youth violence go through the roof, gun violence go through the roof, um, massive increases in, in property crimes and personal crimes, um, young women who are addicted to crack cocaine who are now selling themselves to support their habit, uh, mothers, pregnant mothers and young mothers, uh, forgetting that they were actually mothers of, and parents of children as a result of being addicted to crack, um, attending a lot of deliveries of crack babies. And uh, so, so I had sort of this, this dual hit of bitterness. One, I was bitter with my training and the medical profession because none of what I was coping with as a healer and pediatrician in that community, uh, I wasn't prepared for any of that based on my training. Right? I, I could treat a kid with asthma or an ear infection or even meningitis, but there was this other thing happening that was quite powerful for which I had zero training. And then the second uh, was how and why is this happening in the first place? And I was being introduced to, to what we call later the social determinants of health, the roles that poverty and hopelessness and housing and lack of jobs all play in wellness, in health, and healing. And then lastly, uh, I was quite bitter at what the nation's response was, which was to, as you mentioned, Krista, criminalize drug addiction. I, you know, I'm not sure we've ever collectively told ourselves as a country the story that's just been surfacing for the last 10 minutes here. Yeah. Well, it's a powerful story. I mean, it's, and it's a powerful story, uh, not just for those of us in, in health, but uh, what we know. And, and I'm going to make a quick bridge to yeah. why yeah. I want to connect Patrice's leadership to us as a health foundation, because it may seem like, okay, wait a minute, you've you're a health foundation, you fund health programs. What are you doing in the same room with Black Lives Matter? I don't get it, right? Um, 
so we know two things from the, from the spiritual side. There's a lot of work to you to be done. On the science side, yeah. we know a couple of things. Number one, 80% of what influences our life expectancy has nothing to do with health care. Mm-hmm. Okay? It has to do with other stuff, behavior, community, and, and structures. Right. Secondly, um, an attendant to that, the most important indicator of your life expectancy in this country is your zip code. So if you want to know statistically what are my chances of living to the age of 90, first thing I want to know is tell me your zip code and I'll tell you how close you'll get, right? And so what it means is that there's all this other stuff that influences our health, our wellness, uh, our life expectancy, and those things, particularly in urban America, but not just in urban America, are race and racism, schools and in public education, public housing, jobs, trauma, toxic stress. That's the toxic brew of what leads to disparities, in particular for African Americans in this country, but for for communities of color in general. Mm -hmm. And so what we found is by funding and supporting activism and leadership and advocacy about structural changes in communities, and systems. Then you're addressing health. Yeah, I mean, antibiotics are good, penicillin's wonderful, all that stuff is, health insurance, a good thing. But we've gotta get upstream and deal with these structural issues. And that's why we're thrilled to see the leadership of Black Lives Matter calling attention to structural racism and how it impacts our health. I don't, I don't know when, when you were born, but how did the civil rights movement intersect with your coming of age and, and your consciousness about these things? Yeah, I've, I feel like I'm in the lost generation, okay. um, which is why, I, so it was my parents' generation who did, weathered the depression, defeated Hitler, brought the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? So like on my, on my, on my dad's watch, and my parents watch, they did all that. Which was as okay? much in the 50s as the 60s, although we tend to think of it yeah, as the 60s, right? right? So I yeah. came in at the tail end of, mm-hmm. of the civil rights movement, enough to remember Martin Luther King on television, but not marching, right? I was yeah. too young. And so I feel I, our generation has pretty much dropped the ball. Yeah, I want to, I mean, you've, you, you've, got, you've been on record and you wrote in the LA Times, you know, too many black men of my generation have been asleep at the switch. And I wonder, and I think when we were, uh, when we were having this, talking about this event, um, I don't think you and I actually directly spoke. We spoke to other people. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you said that. You said that you feel like your generation has failed this generation. And I think you meant in terms of everything we're talking about when we talk about civil rights. So, so tell us what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I, uh- Patrice knows exactly what I mean. I mean, we, we, we left the business of addressing structural racism and inequality undone. Um, and some could argue there's good data support that, that inequality has e- even, the gaps have increased um, since, since uh, the gains of victims of the civil rights movement. So, you know, as I, as, I, uh, as I turned 60 this past year, um, I'm hoping my generation feels a, even a greater sense of urgency around getting to the business of addressing uh, structural inequality and racism. 
And that's why we've been thrilled to see the leadership of, of Patrice and her colleagues in Black Lives Matter. Um, so, so as I've, I've, in the last couple of years, had been privileged to be in conversation with some people like John Lewis and uh, Vincent Harding and Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons is one of the early black power feminists. Um, I've been shocked at how sketchy, in fact, what I was taught in school was, and how sketchy, in fact, our public memory, and therefore how we how we apply that. And I, I've I've um, Patrice, I've I've seen you also writing about dis making all these discoveries about the civil rights movement. That there were things that weren't passed on to you that you didn't know. So, you know, how, how, what what have you learned that that you didn't know before that is informing what you're doing now about that movement? and your place in its lineage? Three things. One, that, Mal that MLK was actually radical. I think in this uh, week as we celebrate MLK, it's deeply important that we reclaim his legacy and his image. And I've said over and over again, we've received a sanitized, whitewashed version of MLK. And in fact, MLK was arrested up to 32 times in his lifetime, purposefully, purposeful arrest. Uh, and he understood and he preached the role of disruption. Um, I believe if MLK were alive today, uh, we might not have to be doing this Black Lives Matter thing, but if we were, he'd be on the freeway with us. He'd be in Mall of America with us. Uh, he'd be the first one to say, let's actually teach and train these young people how to lead civil disobedience. Um, two, that uh, this work is actually global. Um, the last few years of MLK's life was re really him challenging the U.S. as an empire, uh, challenging the Vietnam War, uh, and we've lost that piece uh, conveniently, I believe. Uh, and then the last I'll say is the role of women. The epic role of women uh, that I was not taught, um, mm -hmm. that I had to search and dig for. Yeah, it's so true. We, we can all list off a bunch of names of, of men Always. who were leaders, and there were all these women, too. Yes. Not only <clears throat> were there women leaders, but I argue that uh, black women were the architects of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Ella Baker's vision for building leadership. Uh, she was uh, really uh, challenged the idea of having a messiah. Uh, she said we ha need to have group-centered leadership um, and that each community can build up and understand uh, what they need to do to challenge uh, their system. And so, you know, from Ella Baker to Fannie Lou Hamer, I, I think I could say those names in a room and. Um, a handful of people will know them. So there's more work to be done to uncover how many women actually uh, developed and supported and grew the civil rights movement. And one of the striking things about Black Lives Matter is how female-driven it is. Yes, it's mostly what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm curious for both of you about so we are remembering uh, our own history. I also wonder how you think about 
uh, ways in which that movement um, and all it stood for, if there, if there are things we're only now able to appropriate. Um, I mean, I think about W.E.B. Du Bois saying the problem of the 20th century is the color line. What we didn't know in the 20th century what we know now through science is that there's also a color line in our heads. So that even as we pass laws and most of us, the vast majority of us, you know, decided that racism was wrong and bad and didn't apply to us, we still continued to behave in ways that didn't sync with that. Um, I, and I, so I, I wonder if how, you know, are there, and you know, to both of you again, are there ways you think we are able now to rise to this occasion that we have some, that what tools do we have what knowledge do we have that they didn't to live into that vision you know one blink reaction to that question Krista is obvious what this generation has that we didn't have social media mm-hmm. um, yeah right and and a the, movement that started with a hashtag or a new narrative <laughs> yeah, that started yeah. with a hashtag um, and and you mentioned a term narrative change so what what happens with you what you described this issue that's well known as framing right how are issues framed and mm-hmm. how issues are framed uh, dictates how public policy conversations are laid out and the choices that are made. So uh, back to the crack cocaine epidemic and the war on drugs, which actually ended up being a war on people rather than on drugs. And that led to what was literally a bumper sticker campaign slogan called Three Strikes and You're Out which led to a hyper-incarceration set of policies and structures, which led to zero tolerance in schools, which led to record numbers of expulsions and suspensions that disproportionately impacted African-American uh, and, and, and Latino men as well. So, so the last 40 years of these lines that we have in our head and how issues are framed understood and therefore public policy is voted on. Yeah. I mean, those lines in our out, head have went practical from a bumper sticker yeah. and a slogan to national state policy in a minute. And bingo, a 440% increase in the, in the America, in America's prison population. So I think what, what, what black lives matter is a, is a case living case study about is about narrative change and framing. Doesn't come easy, does it, no. Patrice? Um, uh, but but uh, just just that three-letter hashtag is a is a narrative change assault mm-hmm. on 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 the frames that America brings to these issues. And so, okay, because then it leads to okay, if Black Lives Matter then what does it mean for schools? If Black Lives Matter, then what does it mean for police reform? If Black Lives Matter, what does it mean for economic development and jobs? And so it leads to a whole host of, okay, so if that's true, what, what does that mean? And I think for those of us in my generation, Patrice, who are in charge of stuff, it challenges us to, to rethink our frames and, and, and pick different kinds of fights. Hmm. Hmm. 
I would argue the same thing, social media. Um, I don't believe social media is the end-all, be-all, but what has it has allowed for um, is a new generation to speak from their own perspective. Um, it's allowed for a new conversation, uh, new reach. Um, as we know, so much of media is corporatized, and so you're not going to get, um, you know, you're not going to get the authentic messaging from folks who are on the ground who are having these conversations. I think uh, a new generation of anti-racist white allies have been really important in this conversation. Um, and I, I remember specifically after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, how many anti-racist white folks wrote stories about their own um, whiteness and their relationship to it. Mm -hmm. And it was, the, it was this powerful um, conversation with sort of like the public in this vulnerable way around how people are continually um, uh, uh, behaving and supporting um, anti-black racism by their own behavior. Uh, and when Mike Brown was murdered, we saw another round where whole communities, um, uh, non-black POC communities in particular, coming out and saying, you know what? My community is deeply anti-black and I wanna challenge that. And so we get to see a new generation speak for ourselves um, through social media, through online platforms. Um, you know, we're living in the era of, the, of people writing blogs all the time and our me social media accounts, although sometimes really self-absorbed, can be really self-reflective. <laughs> and I think it's, it's powerful. And it's, uh, we didn't even have this during Hurricane Katrina, right? We didn't have social media in the same ways during Hurricane Katrina. What we had was CNN blasting uh, white people finding f food and black people looting. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have another narrative outside of that that could be popularized. And social media has allowed for a new narrative to be popularized. It also presents a whole different model for how social change happens. I think most of us at the end of the 20th century would have thought social change is about large numbers of people on the streets, charismatic leaders, mm -hmm. and, and that is how it worked. But this is much less leader-centric. It's, it's a network of change. It's also amorphous, right? I mean, I know you hear this, and, and, I, and I also want to ask you, um, um, I think when, when there's criticism of Black Lives Matters, um, it's also that, that rage is, is out front, and when people compare, um, you know, the civil rights movement of 50 years ago with Black Lives Matter, you know, they say, you know, where, where, is, the non, where is the love? Uh, and I want to talk about love in a minute because I don't want to just throw that word out there because it's a big, robust word. But, but you know, and, and there's a, there's a, there are dialogues like between ta Coates and Cornel West about is, you know, it's not just Black Lives Matter, but is, you know, if rage is at the center, uh, what is being created in terms of building a different world? So how do, how do you respond to that discomfort? Um, well, I, I disagree. It's both rage and love at the center of our work. I think uh, from the beginning, Alicia Garza's love note to black people that ended with our lives matter, black lives matter. It was from a place of rage, but also from a place of deep love for black people. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, you know, when we show up on the freeway 
uh, when we chain ourselves to each other, that's an act of love. Uh, that act of resistance is an act of love that we will put our bodies on the line um, for, for our community and really for this country. We are, in changing black lives, we change all lives. And I think that's the conversation that needs to be penetrated into folks, right? This conversation about black lives mattering is a conversation about all lives mattering. Um, and I think that our work shows as such, uh, when we have actions, if people have ever been a part of a Black Lives Matter action, it's deeply spiritual. Uh, it's often led by opening prayer. It's, uh, folks are usually saging. We use a lot, a lot of indigenous practices. People build altars, the people who have passed. And so it's this moment to both uh, stand face to face with law enforcement, it's also this moment to be deeply reflective on the people who've been killed by the state and give them our honor. It's an honor to protest for them. So many of our folks um, have been forgotten. So many of our people, uh, names have been lost. And so we've um, said, we will not forget you. Uh, this protest uh, will uh, keep you remembered. And uh, Sandra Bland was a perfect example when she was um, you know, arguably killed inside a jail cell, uh, we said, we will not forget your name um, because so often the names are forgotten. Yeah, and I, I think this is a tricky conversation to have um, um, because you know, one thing you've said is Black Lives Matter, well, and I don't know, and this was probably a moment, Black Lives Matter at this moment is about exposing. And that is what has been so galvanizing. So. You know, I have a 17-year-old son who's a white boy, and there was a, there was a killing in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, he, he, he talked to me about how he heard news from Baltimore and St. Louis and Los Angeles and New York and thought that doesn't happen here. And then there was a vigil at his school, and all these kids, goes to a great big urban high school, all these kids he's been at school with for years stood up and told stories about things that had happened to them. It was completely shocking to him. Things like what happened to you in your childhood. You know, their fathers being dragged out of their houses and taken to prison. Um, uh, this, so, so this exposing, I mean, I don't think, th this is pretty amazing. I don't think you can put this back in the box. And it was in a box, yes. and that's what we realized. A tight one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I mean, it was in the box for a part. So there's, there's two Americas. For, for, for those of us who've lived in it, it was not in a box. Mm -hmm. We were experiencing it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It was trying to, ex it's been trying to expose it to the America that has kept it in a box, and mm -hmm. uh, that has been able to have the privilege to not witness, to not go through. I think now that that's ex been exposed to the other America, you can't put that back in. Yeah. There's no turning back. Yeah, just uh, to your question, Kristen, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a scholar in the history of social movements and activism. It's not what I do. Um, I try to learn. Uh, we try to learn. Um, but you know, in the moment and at the time, the activists are uh, employing a form of strategic outrage, right? Yes. And at the time and at the moment, um, they're always criticized 
marginalized, <laughs> targeted for being outrageous, right? I mean, Martin Luther King is now, you know, on a stamp, and it's a holiday, and there are parades, and, and you know, as you mentioned earlier, Patrice, um, he was detested. Yes. In yes. In many circles during his time, as was Gandhi, mm -hmm. as was Mandela, mm -hmm. uh, put in jail for 27 years, and it was just fine. Thank you. Right. Yeah. And so uh, th there's a. If 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 you're if you're not being accused of being outrageous, then you're probably not <laughs> successfully deploying activism, right? Is one point. The, the second point, which I hope we get to, uh, I just want to tease yeah, it, yeah. Um, uh, is what we have found. And we don't, you know, we're kind of like uh, what was that commercial, 3M or BASF? We don't invent activism, but we try and help get make it better mm -hmm. by supporting organizations who do. And there's a, an audience here full of folks who do work on the ground with, with young people. Um, but the interesting thing that we've found in our research, uh, some research we supported, is that activism and civic engagement is, is actually healthy for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that, there, that there is, uh, to the extent that the folks at the effect of these issues have been traumatized, oppressed, marginalized, excluded, that being part of a social movement, that being civically active and engaged, uh, it, there's actually a wellness factor to it. Whether it, and so the tr the science on the trauma side and what it does to us is a lot better developed than the resiliency side. Okay. But there is something about civic activism and engagement that is appears to be powerfully immunizing mm -hmm. against poor health. Yeah. And so the science that you know the science is not complete on that, but based on what we've seen, it's pretty strong. So for us, f funding and supporting Black Lives Matter, the Youth Justice Coalition, Community Coalition, other organizations that are in this room, we know there's something quite holistically health-supporting. Life-giving. And life-giving yeah. when, when those young people are, are engaged. Mm -hmm. um, and you've, you've both spoken about how young people in particular experience injustice with an immediacy and a rawness take it in in a way that you know with to varying degrees we learn or try to learn to shield ourselves as we get older um, so I just want to talk up here a couple more minutes and then we're going to open this up um, so let's talk about love um, Love was a pivotal, essential word in that original civil rights movement. Um, I, I think even you know for King and everyone around him, but also Malcolm X in the end. Um, but it was a complex, robust vision of love, right? And um, but the, and that language and that language of the beloved community, which is what everything was aiming towards, was also full of biblical imagery. Um, I, I heard something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about at the American Academy of Religion meeting this year, which is like nine, 12,000 theologians. Ruby Sales, <clears throat> one of these women who we, whose name we don't remember, talked about how um, she said, none of us considered ourselves to be religious in the way our parents or grandparents were. There was a lot of religion, but we were rejecting so much of what we'd grown up with. We didn't think that defined us. 
And we only realized later that even though that was true, we were steeped in that tradition, in the hope, in the sense of love, in the songs, in the community. We had our armor on. And she said, and then, then we became you know, involved in policy, and we sent our children out into the empire without their armor on. And I've just been wanting to talk about some. And, and, and when you talk about, um, you do incorporate spiritual armor yes. in Black Lives Matter. You started to talk about that a minute ago. And I'd love to hear some more about that. I'd love to know how you hear that and think about it. I love that. I love that she said that. Um, I think we think about it differently. I mean, to be honest with you, so many of us in the Black Lives Matter movement have either been pushed out of the church, because many of us are queer and out. Um, many of us uh, uh, have not, uh, the church has become a very patriarchal for us as women. And so that's not necessarily where we have found our solace. And I think um, we have had to contend with that during this movement. How do we relate to the black church? Um, and how do we understand ourselves in relationship to the black church inside of this movement? Um, but that, doesn't, that hasn't stopped us from um, being deeply spiritual in this work. And I think for us, that looks like healing justice work. Um, the role of healing justice, which is a term that was created um, probably about seven or eight years ago. Um, and was really looking at how as organizers, uh, but also as people um, that are marginalized, that are impacted by racism and patriarchy, that are impacted by white supremacy, how do we show up in this work as our whole selves? Yeah. How do we um, uh, be in it as our best selves? And how do we look at the work of healing um, I'm really appreciative that Dr. Ross calls himself a healer mm -hmm. because I believe that um, this work of Black Lives Matter is actually healing work. Um, it's not just about policy. It's why I think some people get so confused by us. They're like, where's the policy? I'm like, you can't policy your racism away. Um, we do no longer have Jim Crow laws, but we still have Jim Crow hate. Yeah. But see, that I think is a new insight, right? I just don't think they knew that 50 years ago. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think um, when there are laws in the book that are laws in the books that are so hateful, of course, our first instinct is to get rid of those laws, transform those laws, reform those laws. Um, but there's something much deeper inside of us um, uh, uh, that causes our behavior to be biased or discriminatory. Um, and to me, uh, racism is a sickness. If we're approaching racism and sexism and homophobia as sicknesses, um, you're not just going to think, well, if someone writes standards over and over again, I will no longer be racist. I will no longer be racist. <laughs> that right. It's going to change them. No, it right. takes something else. Um, it takes a sort of exorcism. I deeply believe that. And you see it in people's transformation in this work in the last year and a half from the black community in and of itself, as we say Black Lives Matter, and sort of you see the light that comes inside of people to other communities that are like, I'm 
going to stand on the side of black lives, you see people literally transforming. And that, that's, that's a different type of work. Um, and, and, and for me, that is a spiritual work. It's a healing work. And we don't have it um, codified. Uh, there's no science to it. Uh, really, it's we are social creatures, um, human to human. If you take a moment um, to be with somebody, uh, to um, understand the pains they're going through, um, you get to transform yourself. And I think the last thing I'll say is Black Lives Matter is a rehumanizing project. Mm. Um, we've lived in a place that have has literally allowed for uh, us to believe and center only black death. We've forgotten how to imagine black life. Literally, whole human beings have been rendered to die prematurely, um, rendered to be sick, and we've allowed for that. Our imagination has only allowed for us to understand black people as a dying people. Um, we have to change that. That's our collective imagination. Someone imagined handcuffs, someone imagined guns, someone imagined a jail cell. Well, how do we imagine something different that actually centers black people, that sees them in the future? Uh, every single movie I watch that is about the future never has black people in it. Yeah. That's not a coincidence. <laughs> that is our imagination yeah. showing up and saying, oh, I can't see black people yeah. further than this moment. Um, that's tragic. Yeah. Let's imagine something different. Yeah. Bob, I want to pull you into this in a minute. I, I do want to give a shout out. Diane Winston is here from USC. And actually, the only place I saw writing about this spiritual aspect of Black Lives Matter was in Religion Dispatches. Yes. Did you see that piece? Of it was terrific. And it they, was wonderful. It was just like telling you said, <laughs> when you think of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, you may think of Ferguson, you may think of Baltimore, you may think of, you know, I can't breathe. Um, goes on and talks about this aspect of the movement, and it says Black Lives Matter's chapters and affiliated groups are expressing a type of spiritual practice that makes use of the language of health and wellness to impart meaning, heal grief and trauma, combat burnout, which the original civil rights leaders will tell you they weren't good at, um, and encourage organizational efficiency. And, and Bob, it seems to me that this also, again, like gets at what the work you and California Endowment are doing with you know, trauma and resilience, working with that is precisely in the same field. You know, you, you've written about you know, the old saying that time heals all wounds is simply not true, <laughs> not the, these wounds. Yeah, and, and what, what we struggle with uh, is as, as a, as a private health foundation, we, we want to be um, disciplined and anchored in what the science says yeah. about improving public health and well-being, right? And so now we're talking about love and justice and movements and, you know, it makes our head spin, right? How do we, how do we connect? Well, and it's the narrative of those things doesn't allow for such words, or it's uncomfortable with such words. It, it, it is uncomfortable. We're getting increasingly comfortable with yeah. it. We're beginning to get over ourselves, uh, I think, as many of our, our grantees uh, notice. So a, a couple of quick sort of concrete examples of how the love thing plays out um, in the work that we do. So um, many of the, of the folks that are here in the audience uh, work with young people 
on the school discipline reform, zero tolerance school suspension issue, which uh, came to us from the mouths of young people themselves, was not on our radar screen as a health foundation. They said, we want you to help us get rid of zero tolerance. We said, what are you talking about? As a parent, I'm thinking zero tolerance is a good thing for schools, isn't it? And said, no, it's not. It's the portal to the incarceration superhighway, mm -hmm. right? But what they were also saying to us that the science and the research bears out in terms of their experience is think about the message you are sending to a young person who is acting out in school for whatever reason or however you defined acting out and you suspend them or expel them out of school. If, if that is not the opposite of love, I don't know exactly. what is, right. right? That is a, that is an act of unlove, mm -hmm. right? Um, Right. And and so that's so that's part of why um, and and the data and then the data, you know, if you're suspended one time, even one time, um, you have a two to three times likelihood of being involved with the, with the incarceration system of dropping out of school. I think you right? also say that in the juvenile justice system, there is in fact no question, no interrogation of is there trauma in this life? Exactly. I mean, so, so I mean, there's a movement now, and I'm sure Black Lives Matter is, is, is I'm sure you're absolutely at least familiar with this, if not part of the platform, Patrice. Why do we have juvenile incarceration at all? Yep. Period. Yep. For anybody mm -hmm. in this country, mm -hmm. right? And so, again, we are criminalizing sick, traumatized, mm -hmm. oppressed children mm -hmm. early. The other point I'll, I'll make, something we're doing differently now that we weren't doing five years ago, before we entered this work, um, and, and Charles Fields and Albert Maldonado are here, we now have annual boys, young men of color, and girls and young women of color camps. And they're basically trauma healing resiliency camps where we take them for a week uh, up into the, is it the Sierras? What mountain is that? The Sierras. Um, and young people and, and, and um, young activists who work with them you know, create a space where young people can unload and connect right? and get introduced or supported in their activism and their advocacy, right? And so this is uh, the third year of the boys' camp and the second year of um, uh, the girls' camp, I should say the young women and young men camp. And so, uh, you know, a new experience for us, but a way for us to put our resources on the table and invest in the power of trauma and the power of healing and the power of resiliency as a public health and community health intervention. So that's new for us. Not sure where it's going, not sure we're gonna go with that, uh, but I think the young people and the organization that support them have opened our eyes to the importance of making space, safe space, for connectivity, for healing, for talking about trauma and activism. Hmm. Okay, so if you, I, if you have um, questions, why don't you write them down, um, and we'll do, so we'll do one more question up here, and then we'll open it up. Um, uh, du Bois, I've been thinking about him a lot lately, so I want to bring him back in. Um, he had this notion of double consciousness, which I thought of, Patrice, when I was reading something you wrote in the Washington Post, and you said, as I stand at the threshold of my home, the liminal space between warmth and safety and the chaos of the outside world, 
my experience becomes explicitly black. I mean, you kind of gave voice to that idea of being two things at once in a world. But, but our present moment in Black Lives Matter is also happening. It, we, were, we are also reconsidering identity in a fascinating new way. Multiple identities. And actually, each of you embodies the fact, I mean, neither, I mean, no, none of us is just our race, but, you know, you are black and queer, and both of those things are important, and also, you know, Choctaw and Blackfoot, right? And, and you're, you are on one side African-American and one side Puerto Rican. Um, you straddle multiple identities. Um, I, did, I just wanted to note that. And, I, and how does that, because that, that piece of it um, I wonder if this is something that inside the movement or here that you think about and talk about, I think that's the kind of conversation that doesn't make its way in because we tend to be focused narrowly on events of the moment. And Black Lives Matter, as you said, has been interpreted as just black lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the multiple identity piece is when what we call intersectionality and has been crucial in how we understand our current work and who's showing up for it. Um, it's the reason why, in a lot of ways, we had to create the hashtag Say Her Name. Because even though we were saying Black Lives Matter, and to us, that meant all black lives, um, as we saw time and time again, the media mostly focused on black men and the killing of black men. And we had to say, actually, um, we have to say her name as well because black women are dying at the hands of vigilantes and law enforcement from Rakia Boyd to Renisha McBride to Sandra Bland to Megan Hockaday. Um, so many black women are being targeted. Um, and, and then we had to do another intervention, Trans Liberation Tuesdays, where we had black trans women um, do a National Day of Action to say, our lives matter too. Uh, and this conversation about black lives that is only really focusing on cis black people. What about black trans women, in large part, who are pushed to do sex work, who are not allowed to tell their stories, who, um, when outed, are often murdered? Um, How do we have that conversation? And so I think what's been beautiful about this moment is we are ready to have a larger conversation around what we mean by black lives. So Bob, how does being both black and Puerto Rican, how does that uh, leaven, temper, and inform how you work with this? Yeah, you know, in the, uh, in the late 60s, when I was a uh, uh, 13 or 14 year old, and there was uh, a lot of civic activism at that time, you know what was going on in the 60s, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I always felt I was safe because I, I, I said, okay, if if the black folks win the revolution, I'm good. If it's the Latinos, I'm cool, right? Um, and I can go either way. Uh, so it, it, this job we do, you know, as a private foundation, it's, it's a really weird and unique thing, right? Because we're not actually doing the work. We're kind of sitting, we're, we're, we're kind of what, we're in the audience, sort of, in the balcony, watching what's playing out on the stage. Every now and then, we send a ch- we mail a check to somebody. Um, but I'll I'll tell you what I think, and I would say this I would share this with Patrice, and this is not the first time she's either heard this or thought about it herself. She raised this question of intersectionality. So, in our work, 
we support LGBT and young people's health, trans, um, African-American organizations, Latino, undocumented, so-called illegal immigrants, we don't use that term, um, um, undocumented. Uh, one of our healthy community sites is a tribal reservation up in, in Del Norte, um, surrounded by a very poor rural white community as well. And so uh, we're, we're wondering what we need to do to support and provide some space for the intersectionality term that Patrice mentioned because, because the, the, the power of addressing inequality in this nation by seeing how not only Black Lives Matter is proficient at doing what they can do on behalf of the love of black people, but what they can do in whatever you want to call it, partnership, collaboration, coalitions with with other excluded, marginalized groups. And, and the poster child for this, on the other side of the equation, is the Tea Party. Exactly. <laughs> the, the Tea Party was, was ba basically an amalgamation of kind of siloed groups, some anti-tax people, some anti-government people, some pro-military people, some... The, the poster child okay, for... For power, for amassing and consolidating power. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm sure it's messy behind the curtain, but the Tea Party has taken over the Congress of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And in a sense have dictated who the Republican nominees are and why the leading nominees can talk about exclusion and marginalization, right? So, so the hope for, and I don't want to get overly, I don't want to get partisan about this. I just want to forget about the politics of Democrat versus Republican. Yeah. I just want to talk about the battle against inequality in this nation and what must be done to win it. And our hope is in seeing these pockets of heroic activism gel and come together. So the struggle we have is how do we help support that? And, and I suspect that folks like Patrice and folks who work with LGBT youth and folks who work with with um, the undocumented and immigration issues, they probably have wisdom to share with us mm -hmm. about how we can help support that. Does and that I make guess, sense? Yeah, it does. But I'm also I'm also wondering on a personal level if, um, you know, in your person you have t two identities which often are separated when we talk about issues. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, are there times when you that give you pause or where you think you weigh in differently or see differently because of your own what, no, what is I, it, intersectionality? I, yeah, I, I think, it, well, put it this way. It makes me understand, even though it didn't, we, I never had a word for it, and now someone said this word. I don't know where the word <laughs> intersectionality came yeah. from, Patrice. Yeah. But when I heard it, I said, yeah, that's what I believe in, right? Um, because that's who I am, right? Uh, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to underestimate uh, for for you, Kristen, you would you, you're there. Um, this is powerfully spiritual, important work upon which the future of this nation rests. Right, and, and I think it calls upon us to bring the best of the total experience of our best selves mm -hmm. to the to the table. Right, it's it's not. 
We can't mail it in on addressing inequality in this nation. Each of us is gonna to have to bring the best of ourselves to the great, not just the best of ourselves, but the best of ourselves in, in unity and in coalition. And so that's, that's what my bicultural and other kinds of experiences tell me about where to go with this. Mm. Okay. Um, how are we doing this, Lily? Oh, so Lily Percy, my senior producer, also Chris Hegel is here from our team. Um, she's going to walk around with a mic. Bye. The, the note cards were for you to take notes, or if you're shy, oh, sorry. don't want to actually ask your question yourself, you can just give me the card. Because we believe in empowering introverts. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a feeling everybody here will feel really good about asking their questions. If you just want to raise your hand, I can come over. This is very smart, so nobody takes over the mic, right? <laughs> awesome. Um, hello, and thank you so much for the jewels of wisdom that you've brought. Um, my question is, uh, someone said to me recently, and it really resonated, that the system is without a soul. Mm. And in, in the midst of your work, especially around pushing policy, um, how do you suggest that we bring some spirit back into the system? Yeah, that's the truth. Um, yeah, the organization that I founded, Dignity and Power Now, um, with many other organizations across the county, have been fighting for civilian oversight of the Sheriff's Department. And in the most recent iteration, uh, the County Board of Supervisors have passed a, um, a civilian oversight body that is not, uh, that is in complete contradiction to what the community has asked for. And even though the community has tirelessly worked over and over again, put their hearts on the line, told their really tragic stories about sheriff violence, um, this body, who is supposed to work for us, decided otherwise. And I, can he I heard it in the voices of people who spoke that day, who were just, it was, it's, it's more than anger, it becomes hurt. Uh, it's very personal when you're working on these fights that you've uh, that your life has been impacted by. And I think I'm not clear if the system can gain a soul. I'm not sure that that's what their purpose is. Um, but what I think we must do is not lose our own. Um, because it is very easy uh, when you're fighting big systems who crush whole communities to feel like, well, what's the point? Um, and I think the point is um, although a victory is amazing, let me tell you, I've, I've had some victories and that feels good. The point isn't necessarily the victory. The point is building the power of our communities. Um, and that looks like the organizing, it looks like what it takes to have those conversations. It's the door knocking, it's the community meetings, it's the idea that we had the audacity to imagine something different for ourselves. And so, for me, uh, I, I do this work because I wouldn't have it any other way. But I also understand that uh, we're up against great odds. And um, our work is to remind ourselves and reorganize ourselves there, that there's a much bigger vision and that we might not see it in our lifetime. Um, I think the civil rights movement talked about it a lot, right? We might not see these things in our lifetime. But if it's about um, something bigger than us, then we're gonna stay in it for the long haul because the hope is 100, 200 years from now, um, this, this place will still be in existence 
and it, we will have left it better off. Yeah, I would say, Kruti, if you don't, uh, if you could just weigh in, I, I um, again, this is the view from the balcony, right? Um, <laughs> so the work that you do at Youth Justice, um, Brother Crusade, the Children's Defense Fund, a community coalition, um, the, the one thing, what we try and execute is, is this combination of, of storytelling and science to move a policy agenda, right? And what is storytelling but basically a story about love and spirituality, right? I mean, um, it's, it, it, it does, uh, you, know, you visit the Brother Crusade and you hear the story of a young man who was suspended from school and expelled and was in juvie and got out and whose dad has been in prison and uh, mom has diabetes and uh, there's, there's, there's no logical, rational reason for that young person to have hope and does right. and is acting on it, mm -hmm. right? And so what, what better love story can you come up than that, right? Um, and then further deploying a sense of agency and empowerment to, to affect the civic discourse and public policy discourse about changes that have to happen, right? That's a pretty powerful spiritual event. And so I, I think what, uh, watching what you all and the younger generation have been able to do and use social media to lift those stories up and get them out mm -hmm and become part of the discourse for, for, for civic change and, and public policy change. Um, I, I think it may seem frustrating, particularly with what you do every day, Kruti, um, but it is making a powerful difference. I mean, school suspensions are down 40% in the state of California because of what you all have done and what those young people have done, mm -hmm. right? And we are, going, we are going to reform the justice system. Mm -hmm. It is happening, and it will happen on the stories of of these young people. So I, I think it's a pretty powerful testimony, uh, testimony to love and spirituality um, in a public policy conversation. I like that idea of stories as something that resurrects soul. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, George Weaver with the Brotherhood Crusade, and I obviously wrote a number of questions, but I'll lift myself to one. With respect to the balance between um, policy advocacy and just the ability to change a person's mindset. Mm -hmm. LAPD Police um, Chief Charlie Beck has mandated that every LAPD officer goes through team policing and trauma-informed training. They recruited me to do the training. However, they said, well, we're only gonna put them through eight hours of training. And I said, well, that's not sufficient. <laughs> yeah. They said, well, this is all we can do. Yeah. So my, my question is, what is it, one, is that even worth the time? Two, if so, what is it that you would suggest that um, if you had any advice for me as I go through this, provide this training, what would that be? And number three, how do we start to really change the minds and help them understand that, hey, wait a minute, this, we can't put a Band-Aid on this, we actually have to change this. Mm -hmm. um, is it worth the time? Well, I think that's a question for you. Is it worth your time? Um, I, I think, you know, this is always interesting, especially with law enforcement trainings. The trainings that they probably need the most always get the least amount of attention, whether that's mental health training, 
whether that's what they call sensitivity training around race and gender. Um, and, you know, I, what I, I will say is, is this, there's always this um, contradiction between the system of policing and the individuals who are policing. I have family members who are police officers, sheriffs, COs. I love my family members. Um, and I also know that they're in a system that has historically been racist, um, that has historically been violent towards particular communities. And so the question becomes, um, how do you undo that? Uh, is it possible? Um, and, and the conversations I've had, uh, you know, people think that BLM doesn't talk to law enforcement. I think I've talked to more law enforcement in this movement than I have beforehand, that's for sure. And that's mostly because it's a lot of former law enforcement or current law enforcement who are like, we are on your side, actually. We see this happen in our own department. And, you know, I feel like that's a voice that is so missing from the public discourse. We do not hear those from those people. Yes, or especially the them. ones that are currently inside because they don't want to yeah. risk their lives. <laughs> yeah. But the ones who have left um, or who have, you know, retired definitely have a conversation, especially, I've you know, mostly from black former law enforcement where they say they were treated pretty badly inside the force as well. Um, and so I think trainings are useful. And what I will say, though, is that um, without organizing, uh, without law enforcement organizing within, within, within their own agencies, it might fall flat. And so I think, you know, in your own conversations, it's about one saying, well, where is this going to go after I end this eight-hour training? You know, how will this continue? And challenging them to really say, we'll show up in these ways. Um, because I think uh, you can get eight hours, but that doesn't always translate um, to your relationships on the streets. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I guess the answer, uh, George, is, is both and. I mean, you're talking about um, there's practices and policies mm -hmm. and there's culture. Mm -hmm. Right, and those of us have been around managing anything, the old adage, strategy, uh, culture each strategy for lunch, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would say, George, um, take the shot. Mm -hmm. And um, as Sun Tzu in The Art of War says, when confronting the enemy, don't go alone. If you need, if you need, if you need to, if you need to bring. Um, civic leaders in support of what you're trying to do to Chief Beck. Mm -hmm. And we need to meet with him to support your saying, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, and thank you for inviting me in, but it's insufficient, and here's why. And so you're kind of you're doing both. We're, you're getting the foot in on the practice, but we also can support your voice in saying to the, poli to the, to the police chief, um, this is a cultural issue. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a little better on this practice, but this is a cultural issue, and we hope you take it seriously. So. Or just send Patrice in there. No, <laughs> you don't want to see me. <laughs> I'd like to know. Ooh, I'd like to know your thoughts about reparations, and also social media has done a great job of. Uh, putting a new narrative out there, but there's also mainstream media. How would you critique the way they've been covering Black Lives Matter? 
So two questions, one on reparations and then one on BLM and mainstream media's role. Got it. Do you want to talk about it? No. no. Okay. Um, <laughs> I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I am a strong believer in reparations. Um, I'll specifically talk about the community of Flint right now. Uh, if any community in this moment in history needs and deserves reparations, it's that community. Uh, we have no idea what the long-term impacts of a community who have been ingesting lead for two plus years is going to have, not just on them, but our entire country. Um, we can't separate ourselves from Flint. We can't separate ourselves from Detroit. Um, and so uh, I, I think, um, you know, I'm a firm believer in so, sort of global reparations, but I do want to sort of specifically talk about Flint and uh, the crisis that exists. And um, just reading articles after article and talking to the community organizers down there, it's desperate. Uh, it's, in the, it's in these moments where I, I sort of scoff at the language that we're living in this land of the free, uh, where we're all... Uh, uh, where everything is possible for us. And then you sort of zoom into Flint. And you're like, excuse me? 60% black, mostly poor, and now lead poisoning? I mean, tragic. And so, yeah, I think there's a huge argument for why that community in particular deserves reparations. And then as far as Black Lives Matter and, and the media's response to it, you know, I have really good relationships with a lot of different journalists who are trying to be um, with integrity as they follow this movement. And then obviously we have the right, um, the right uh, mainstream media who's completely attacked us, who has said, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly in particular has said that he, it, uh, it's, um, he's sort of making it his job to destroy the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I think, I take it seriously in the sense that it's white right-wing pundits like uh, Bill O'Reilly that allow for the Dylan Roofs to um, exist and do what they do. And uh, we've made it our choice to not actively engage um, the right-wing media because there's far too much work to do than to sit and argue with them about Black Lives Matter. Um, and then I think in general, there is a bit of disappointment in the media at large's inability to understand the complexity of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been obviously a deep focus on law enforcement violence, but that's not uh, the only thing that we're focused on. Uh, we've been deeply engaged in Five for 15. Uh, we've been deeply engaged in um, reproductive rights for black women in particular. And so I would, I would love as we continue to push forward that uh, the media is able to sort of broaden its understanding and its coverage of what is a massive movement that's um, more than just us fighting against police violence and the killings of black people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I actually have a comment to, to Patrice's comment. Uh, and I'm reminded as I, as I hear you uh, recount your your story and recent experience, Patrice, uh, the, the four stages of social change is outlined by Gandhi. First they ignore you, <laughs> then they laugh at you, mm -hmm. then they fight you, mm -hmm. 
then you win. <laughs> so you're in stage three, my dear. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Others? Okay, uh, so, and we'll take one more. Or did you have a question also? So would you take two more? I just want to give you guys, the two of you a heads up that I, I want to ask you when we come back here, just if you have a, a question for each other. So maybe let that simmer. Um, yes. I'm the rector of a small church in Altadena. We have the good grace of having Dr. Ross in our congregation. And I'm even more grateful than ever after hearing him speak today. Um, just a simple question for our small church in Altadena. Beginning to wake up and wanting to engage in the work of healing and hope with the oppressed in our immediate community, what would each of you say is the first best step? Okay, um, I love Altadena. Thanks for being in the room. Uh, I think the first best step would be hosting a community meeting um, and seeing where folks, how uh, this movement, current movement, is landing on people. Uh, what are people feeling most impacted by in the city of Altadena? What are people's needs? Um, we have a Black Lives Matter chapter in Pasadena who's doing great, great work. Um, and I know that you're neighboring uh, cities and towns, and it would be good to even maybe have like a community meeting with Black Lives Matter Pasadena members and who's interested in having a broader conversation. I'm a big fan. I, I think part of what I miss the most in the work, because I don't get to do it as much as I used to, because I live on a plane most of the time, is sitting with people and just listening and listening to what folks care about the most uh, what what needs aren't being met, and take it from there. Yeah, I, I mean, I I love my community, Altadena, mm -hmm. uh, my church, and and our pastor and co-pastor. And and uh, you know, a couple of things. One is um, you need to have a conversation about the meta, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the systems and the structure and sort of how we got here, right? We were, the reason why we had the outcomes we have, for example, um, an 18 year old African American male in the state of California who has dropped out of high school has a 75 to 80% chance of going to prison. And a young African American male in the state of California is more likely to have been arrested than have voted in the last election. Right, so it's stuff, it's just unacceptable stuff like that. And, you know, systems give us the outcomes they are designed to produce. Exactly. This is not an accident. Exactly. They are, this is a structural phenomenon, mm -hmm. okay? This is not bad luck, or you were a bad person, or this is a structural phenomenon that produces these kinds of, so I, I think having a, a, a conversation that, that doesn't bury people there, but just says, yeah, this is, big and then what we can do individually as a church even if it's a little thing um, supporting one family or one you know the, the church you know listen we're gonna for all of us who run businesses in our church we're gonna ban the box mm -hmm. we're not gonna let a prior a felony conviction get in the way of employment and so uh, here I am lecturing here I am lecturing my pastor about faith <laughs> <laughs> but I 
you know, I'm reminded, um, Pastor Carey, of uh, someone once defined faith for me as, like, do what you got to do and leave the rest up to the Lord. It's not quite that simple, but do what we must do and what we can do and trust that others are going to either join or be inspired by our own action. And so I say that, I wanted to end there uh, on this comment, uh, Krista, because uh, I'm still scratching my head about where is the faith community in this nation on the matter of inequality. Mm -hmm. I, I, their, their relative absence, it, it, it shows up here and there, but their relative absence at the forefront mm -hmm. of this battle is disturbing. Mm -hmm. Are you asking me? <laughs> That's going to explain your, your kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I mean, something I'm aware of is, you know, we are living in this moment that is cathartic on so many levels. We, we are redefining basic things that the 20th century thought it had figured out, including the definition of marriage and family and gender and identity and leadership and authority. And so all of our institutions are, are kind of imploding. They, the forms we have, starting with schools, prisons, you know, and churches and religion, they don't make sense. And so I, I think one thing that's going on with religious institutions, like I think every institution, is you know, the, the, the whole, there's an existential question anyway. Um, and that's not an excuse and it's not an answer. But, but, but you know, I... Something I do see happening in, I don't know, we have a conversation going in Youngstown, Ohio, one of these American cities, quintessential American cities, where the future that was supposed to be disappeared almost from one day to the next. Huge poverty. You know, we have great big church buildings in the middle of urban areas that have completely lost their purpose, but you have this amazing physical plant, and you do have religious communities asking that question, so what is what can we be here in the middle of a city now? And it's going to be very different from when everybody lived there and everybody came to church on Sunday. Um, it's an important question to put out there and let's sit in the room. I mean, let's sit in our public room. Yeah, I mean, the, glim the glimmer of hope I've seen um, after, after my, I just, let me just make up for my scathing review of the faith community. <laughs> I, um, the, what is abundantly clear, um, even outside the confines of the Black Lives Matter movement, is a growing recognition about incarceration and the prison pipeline in this country. Okay. On the right, on the political right and on the political left, um, Prop 47 here in California, which reformed, uh, tried to bring some common sense reforms to, to smart and preventive-oriented justice reform, was endorsed both by Newt Gingrich and Jay-Z, yep. right? So when Newt and Jay-Z agree on something, we should take notice. Um, and there are faith leaders on, on both sides of the ideological equation. I know we shouldn't be mixing faith and ideology, but it happens in this country, who believe that we're just putting too many people in prison, right? And that we need to be smarter. So. Um, uh, that, that's one area uh, where we've seen, you know, some movement, but, but I would love to see more s 
squarely aimed at inequality as defeating inequality as the next moonshot for the nation. And, 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 why, and why our faith community is not out front leading that in a bigger way is a head scratcher. I think the question of where to begin is there's so many issues within these issues. And, and also there's a feeling of complicit, complicity and guilt and pain and not knowing where to start. And so that's why I think your answer, Patrice, like a place to begin, which is very doable. Hold a community meeting. Invite someone from Black Lives Matter in the community next door. Um, I think more of that kind of direction, honestly. We, I mean, we kind of feel like we should know how to start, but we don't. And I think there's a lot of anguish in people that they don't know how to start, and so then they, don't, they get paralyzed. One, there was one more. Maybe we need to do another quick one. So like George, I have like a lot of questions that I would want to ask, but I think what I want to um, really do is thank you for having this very powerful and healing conversation. I'm very fortunate that I grew up in South LA before the crack cocaine epidemic as a child, and so I had the opportunity to envision and to be a part of a healthy community uh, and envision a future for my family um, and so as a Chicana that has worked doing um, social justice work um, since my youth, I really feel a great sense of responsibility for developing black leadership. And um, while I think that um, some of the, mo the most exciting time in my life so far has been seeing the Black Lives Matter really refocus the conversation around racial justice. And so I thank you for that because my children and the youth at Community Coalition uh, feel validated. And it's not a question to them about whether we're face currently facing racial inequality. Um, but I do want to ask in particular to you, Dr. Ross, with the California Endowment being a private foundation that has attention at the national level and has been very present and has really played a leadership role, how do we also, while we're you know, helping young people feel validated, begin to show more of the science and the stories that show that our communities really do need um, a level of healing um, to deal with the trauma that our neighborhoods and our communities have experienced. How do we, at a wider, you know, um, at, at a larger scale, really show what's working in terms of healing within communities where uh, youth leadership, civic engagement does make a difference in the long-term success and health and well-being of families? I don't feel like we've done well um, on that part, I feel like we're just beginning to touch the tip of the iceberg, and I, I, I really think that there has to be more investment and a greater push to show what is working um, in healing and preparing our next generation to deal with these major problems that now we've exposed them to, as you said, with your son. My kids, every day they're asking questions. Our youth at the coalition, and so how do we, as adults, really help um, to equip them uh, long-term uh, with the issues that they have to 
you know, confront as they get older, but also with the healing practices that we have to protect and hold on to. Yeah, you know, Arya, uh, keep keep pushing us. Uh, you know, what the, the wisdom we have uh, really really uh, emerges from uh, the young people and the community residents that that you work with, not just here in South Los Angeles, but in Richmond and East Oakland and Fresno and in Coachella. Uh, and we just need to be continue to be, you know, better leaders through through better listening and hard listening. Uh, the, the one thing that that um, I'll just tee up a, a, a second challenge, uh, Krista, uh, which and it's, you know, as a pediatrician, I feel like I should have known this one better, right? Particularly an African American and Latino pediatrician, but. Um, on the public policy front, we need to do a better job of lifting up this issue of trauma exposure and toxic stress in young people yeah. and what it does, and what it yeah. does to health in the immediate and in the long term. Yeah. And the science for that is, it's not a tsunami of science, but it's pretty darn good. And I, I could, t today, standing before you now, I could make a reasonably compelling argument, a coherent argument, that uh, trauma and toxic stress and exposure to it is the number one public health problem in this country. Agreed. I, I could make that case. Um, and so you're talking about young people and their families, the whole, not just what they're experiencing, but what they're experiencing. Everybody. Everybody around Black, them. white, female, yeah. gay, straight, yeah. Republican, Democrat, Iowa, California. Yeah. Trauma is toxic for your health, yeah. um, and not just in the immediate, but the science that shows that exposure to to trauma in the early years and toxic stress has a tale of 20, 30, 40 years of bad health that yeah. follows it, right? So think about the healthcare costs, mm -hmm. what that does to mental health and depression. Yeah. If you go to a women's yeah. prison, 80% of those women have been either sexually, physically, or, or violently abused. I mean, so it goes on and on. And so we need a breakthrough moment on that one, Orianne. I, th I think to the extent that you all can, can push us to be more whatever, bold, assertive mm -hmm. with the platform we have, um, uh, you know, keep pushing. Okay, quickly, do you have a quick, yeah. Oh, hang on, let's, let me get you, let's get you a microphone. This question is for Patrice. John Lewis will be in town, I think, tomorrow, attending a prayer breakfast. And if you had an opportunity to meet with him prior to his address, what would be one thing that you would praise him for? And then what would be one thing that you would ask him to do or to say or to address? Um, I, wouldn't, I want to meet him. <laughs> I know that uh, Eyes on the Prize is doing uh, PBS's re-issuing uh, Eyes on the Prize, and they interviewed him um, and with Jonathan Butler, the young brother from Mizzou. I would praise him for uh, setting such a remarkable uh, standard for what it means to show up for black life during his lifetime and his um, ability to stay the course. Um, I would, yeah, I think that would be like, thank you like deep, deep gratitude. Uh, and then the second thing I would um, ask for is come train us. Mm. Um, I think people think that Black Lives Matter 
uh, leaders and members don't want to be want mentors. We do. Uh, we want mentors. We want uh, elders that were part of the civil rights movement to train us. We don't want them to tell us what to do, um, but we want training. We want to be talked to. We want to be in conversation. I had the pleasure of meeting with Sekou Odinga and a similar uh, intergenerational conversation. The brother that was uh, incarcerated uh, from the Panther Party was incarcerated um, uh, when Asada Shakur was incarcerated. And it was one of the most beautiful exchanges. And it was just, you know, just us looking at each other and him being like, thank you, and me being like, thank you, and dropping some wisdom specifically around surveillance and the role surveillance played in his movement and now what's playing in ours. And uh, we, de- we need deep mentorship. Uh, and I would love if, um, if, if the, the older generation would uh, show up for us in that way. It's a wonderful question and a wonderful answer. Do you have questions of each other as we, yeah. as we draw to a close? Anything you'd want to ask? I have one. Okay. Um, what, has, what has inspired you um, to be in the work that you're currently in? And what are you feeling most inspired by, by this current movement? Yeah, I'm I'm inspired by watching. Um, there's there's no for me there's no. I'm a very patriotic American. Okay, I I, um, I understand that patriotism has been ideologically handcuffed uh, these days. Um, but I love the idea of this nation, mm. right? It, and it's and it's promise and. And uh, uh, for those of you that I'm going to take you back to maybe maybe a painful moment when you were in college and you had to read Democracy in America by Tocqueville, <laughs> it's like oh my god. Um, but in in the last third of, of of Democracy in America, Tocqueville describes, and it was interesting because you know he's this French sociologist. He comes to America in the, in the 1800s. And you know, back then in Europe, you know, monarchs and kings and queens ran stuff. The people didn't run anything. And so he comes to America saying, you know, what's up with this, right? And ostensibly, he comes interestingly to study our prison system, right? Which is another interesting uh, tidbit. But his, his one of his uh, quieter uh, uh, insights is. Uh, you know, and he gets, you know, he gets, okay, there's a president and there's a Congress and there's a legend, you know, I remember the three branches of government from high school civics 101 that we all learned. And then, he, and then he recognizes there's this thing that happens off the org chart that's pretty powerful where Americans come together and using their voice, and he didn't use the word advocacy, but I'll use it, okay? come together to solve problems through their executing on their own agency. And they don't wait for permission from the king or the queen or even the Congress to do it, right? And he called them actually associations, which was, I think, the forerunner of the nonprofit sector, right? People coming together to solve problems. And so um, that's, the idea of democracy is pretty powerful. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's love executed through governance in a way, right, through a political structure. 
And so what keeps me going is when, when I see and we see the most marginalized, the most oppressed, these, the most stigmatized, exercising agency and voice and power to change systems, that's pretty heady stuff. That's spiritual, right? That's, yeah. I mean, I go to church on Sunday, but I go to church when I visit the organizations we support. So for me, that has been inspiring, is inspiring today, continues to be um, inspiring for me. Um, um, I was going to ask a, f- a final question, which, which Dr. Ross has just answered, which is, you know, what makes you despair and what gives you hope right now? And, and, and I think when you talked about trauma, that was your despair, and you've just given us this really beautiful uh, moment of hope. And so, Patrice, I, I want to end by you know asking you, you know, right now in this moment, you know, what what makes you despair? Where are you finding your hope? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the despair is definitely in knowing that we aren't currently living the dream that we have dreamt for black lives, um, that um, black folks are still, uh, poor black people in particular, are still um, suffering deeply, including my own family. I think there was something I put on social media the other day that uh, it's intense when the very movement you started isn't necessarily translating to supporting your own family. That's difficult to witness. Um, When, you know, you're fighting the criminal justice system and your nephew just caught a case, 18-year-old nephew just turned 18, we successfully were able to keep him out of juvenile hall, Um, but now he just caught a case. And it's, it's, um, it's hard. It's difficult and it tugs at me. What else can I be doing? What more can I be doing? Um, But the hope uh, is, uh, for me, the hope lies in uh, the movement, the mass movement, the, um, uh, the folks who are unapologetic in our love for black life and black people are um, consistency. Folks did not think we would last this long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are now being like, oh, I guess we really got to deal with these people. And that feels good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I joined this work because I was angry and depressed and um, did not feel hopeful. And it was in this work where I found Uh, a deep sense of faith and resilience and possibility. Um, And so my nephew can catch a case, (laughs) um, but he knows that his auntie is uh, not gonna let him go out like that. And so we bring our community together to help raise money so he can get a private attorney, so we can fight as much as we can fight and get him the best deal possible. Uh, And then we show up back on the front lines and try to fight bigger enemies. And so literally my hope comes in this fight. I I think I always have, everything becomes a campaign to me. 
whether it's in my family <laughs> or in my life. I'm like, how do we make this a campaign? <laughs> and, um, you know, I think those tools are have been absolutely necessary for my own health and wellness. It's been um, a great honor and also very nourishing to be part of this conversation today. Um, Bob, you, you spoke a minute ago about being being our best selves. And uh, culturally, we're a lot better at dwelling on what's going wrong. Um, but we want to be called to our best selves. And uh, the work you're doing here is aspirational, and Black Lives Matter is aspirational. And so I, I just want to thank you for being part. And I really thank everybody in this room, because I think everybody in this room is part of this work of calling uh, ourselves and our communities to their best. and. Uh, and, and, and in so doing, may, helping make that happen. So thank you. Thank you, thank you Krista, for what you do.